All right, Second Samuel. We're going to be uh, looking at a, a time in David's life. It's pretty cool as we take a look where David has made his mistakes. I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's not as many of us here who have made mistakes in our life, bad choices, done uh, dumb things. But David did. Uh, David should have been putting himself out where where God had called him to be. But he decided to stay back, and on that day that he decided to stay back, he met a woman named Bathsheba. Most of us know the story from there. David took Bathsheba, uh, slept with her, then, uh, in order to hide the pregnancy, tried to bring her husband home and make it all work out. That didn't work out, so instead he killed him, or had him killed, and took her as his wife. And as a result in his life, as his kids kind of watched all that un- unfold before him, uh, the Lord said, the sword's never going to depart from your family. And we saw it last week as, as we were looking at the, the life of David and his kids in particular. And on his firstborn son, who was next to be king, he decides that he's in love with his half-sister, Tamar. Now, he doesn't tell anybody, but he just uh, puts together a plot. I mean, after all, that's what dad did. He put together a plot on how to get Tamar, who lived on the other side of the palace, to to come over to the wing where the boys stayed and and help him while he was sick, feed him chicken soup. So she came over to help him out, you know, with an attitude of of doing something good for her brother. And her brother put everybody out of the room and raped his sister. She goes back to her brother, her full brother. His name is Absalom. Absalom, some of you maybe remember the story in the Bible. Absalom's the story about the guy with long hair, had long, beautiful hair. In fact, the Bible tells us he would cut his hair. Uh, we'll read it tonight. I don't remember if it's every year or every other year, and it weighed four pounds. That's a lot of hair. Fritz left, right? Fritz doesn't have that problem. He's not going to grow that much hair in a year. I won't either, probably, huh? Yeah. But anyway, so that's Absalom. So Absalom plots for two years on how he's going to get his brother back. And David, when he finds out about it, he's angry and he's upset about it, but he doesn't really do anything because, because Amnon's the crown prince and he's the next one to be king. And, and maybe he's feeling guilty about the mistakes he made in his life. So he doesn't do anything. He doesn't uh, discipline his, his son. He doesn't take care of it. So Absalom does it for him. Two years later, he has a special meal, invites all the kids to it. When they all show up, he kills Amnon. He has those servants kill him. He doesn't actually get his hands dirty because, well, he learned that from David, who had somebody else kill Uriah. So we see this stuff going on in the family. Well, Absalom runs away and he stays with his grandpa. His grandpa was a, a king in another land, so he's hanging out with his grandpa and he's there for a couple of years and finally Joab the head of the army for David he says well go get him go get your son you tell him he can come back and David's still mad David's still mad he killed my my oldest boy but you know you're kind of torn right because they're both his kids he cares about them both so David sends for Absalom tells him to come back come on back and but tell him he can come back but he can't never see my face again so they're living in the same town, living in the same house, but it's a big house. And Absalom's not to see David's face anymore. Well, that's kind of where we left off last week, but if you want to take a look at it with me, we'll, we'll just pick it up in uh, at the very end of chapter 14 of 2 Samuel. And here's what it says, beginning at, uh, at verse 25. It says, Now in all of Israel... There was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. So this guy has got it all together. The total package. There he is. And when he cut the hair of his head at the end of every year, he cut it because it was heavy on him. And when he cut it, he weighed the hair on his head at 200 shekels, according to the king's standard. Roughly today, that's four pounds. Four pounds of hair that that he would cut off of his head. Now to Absalom were born three sons and one daughter, whose name was Tamar. And she was a woman of beautiful appearance. Now, what we discover about Tamar, Tamar was the name of his sister, who two years earlier had been raped. 
we find out that that, that part of David's family, that part of, of his kids, they were just striking. Tamar was beautiful. Little Tamar, the little girl, she's beautiful. Absalom, everybody just, he's got, he's got, he's got it all. Man, he, he looks like he has it all together. But the problem is, you know, oftentimes we judge people from what we see on the outside. And maybe they look like they got it all together. Man, that's the guy or that's the girl. Look at them, they're perfect. They have all the things that I'm looking for outwardly. But the reality is, he had no character. He had no character. I mean, we hear the story about how he, he, he took care of his sister. But the reality is, he was second to the throne. So killing Amnon did him a favor. Now it made him the next in line for the throne. And we don't really read another drop about Tamar, or what happened to her, or what he, if he ever did anything else for her or not, or, or what happened, she just kind of passes from the pages of Scripture. But Absalom, we see in his character this defect, and the defect is, he wants his first. And that's a defect we have still in our world today. We've got a whole world full of people whose focus is themselves. What's going to make me happy? Is what, how's this going to help me? What's this going to do for me? We have me-itis. The cure for that is to do for someone else. It's to do what the Bible says. The Bible says in the book of Philippians chapter 2 that we ought to look at others as being better than ourselves. Now, typically we don't do that. Typically, we don't. we don't. We don't see the guy on the corner that maybe doesn't have a job or he's homeless or whatever. We don't see him as better than us. We look at him, we see some defect in his personality, there's something wrong with him because he should be able to, to get it together or whatever. And, but I, that's not the character that we saw of Jesus. Jesus' character was, was different than that. But that's the character of of Absalom is not the character of David. Remember, David, the Bible tells us, is a man after God's own heart. Now, that doesn't mean he was somehow better than anybody else. It just means, as we've talked about before, God was central in his life. So when he would do things, whatever he did, whatever he did, if, whether it was leading the army or it was writing a song, he did it for the Lord because he loved the Lord. Now, does loving the Lord mean we don't mess up? Yeah, that would be a great deal if it did. Unfortunately, wherever we go, we still take us with us. So the possibility of us botching something, making a mistake like David did, it's there. But at the same time, if we lay those failures out before the Lord and ask for forgiveness, His forgiveness is there too. To tell us, try again. Keep going. You know, failure is never final or fatal. But sometimes the lies we tell ourselves tells us that it is. So David we see as a, a guy who messed up but has a different character than Absalom. And Absalom we see pretty focused on himself. And, and, and as such, you know, those three kids that we just read about, you're never going to see them again on the pages. Absalom's too busy trying to figure out how to be king. His kids, you know, they weren't all that important to him. It was about his success. What could he gain? What could he have? It says, Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem, but did not see the king's face. So David said, hey, we're not going to... You guys know any dysfunctional families out there? Who? No, 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 not mine. Now, you look up dysfunctional, you can see members of my family in the pages. The point is, that's still here. The Bible is so so living because it tells real stories about real people, not this, this uh, Pollyanna view that everything is always going to be perfect. There's dysfunction in the family. David didn't see his son. They were living in the same house for two years. Did, you, did, you, did somebody send in Morse code over the speaker? For two full years. But the Bible tells us what happens. The Bible says, Therefore, Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king. 
But he wouldn't come to him. And when he sent again a second time, he still would not come. Now, Joab, remember, it's the leader of David's army. He, he made the deal with David so David would bring his son back. So he did what he could to bring, the, to bring him back. But then Absalom's getting burnt. He's saying, why can't I see my dad? Why can't I take care or do these other things? What's going on? And so he's, he's struggling with that. And he, so he says to jo, Joab, and Joab ignores him. That's never happened to you guys, has it? Where, where you reach out to somebody who maybe at one time was there for you, but all of a sudden they don't hear your phone doesn't ring when you call them. Or your number comes up and they, you know, set it back down on the desk. That was what was going on here. That's what's happening. He's, he's trying to reach him. He's trying to talk to him, but Joab won't talk to him. So I'm not going to tell you that this is what you should do, but this is what Absalom did. So he said to his servants, see, Joab's field is over there by me. Joab had a field, and he has barley. He had grown barley in his field. So he said, go burn it. <laughs> go set his field on fire. So this, this, what we're reading here on the page of the scripture, would be just as though you lived right next door to the head of the CIA. And you're trying to talk to the head of the CIA, but he don't want to talk to you. So you burn his field. Joab was in a habit of making people disappear. He, he was not the, the greatest of guys. But here Absalom, he burns his field down. He's going to get, and it works. It gets Joab's attention. Joab wants to talk to him now. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom's house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Somehow, I think it might not have quite sounded like that when he said it and Absalom answered Joab look I sent to you saying come here that I may send you to the king to say why have I come from Jeshur it would have been better for me to be there still now therefore let me see the king's face but if there is iniquity if there's sin in me then let him execute me tell dad to do something he's either going to kill me for what I did or he's going to start talking to me one or the other. Because David avoided the conflict with his son for two years, what grew in the heart of Absalom was rebellion. And Absalom's going to spend the rest of his life fighting against his dad. It just tells us the importance of face to face. You know that Jesus said, if you have a problem with your brother, you go talk to him face to face. You don't call his neighbor. You don't talk to your friend. You don't talk to somebody else. You go to your brother and you deal with it face to face. And so because they didn't, this attitude of rebellion develops in Absalom. And we're going to see it come out as we take a look at the next couple of chapters. So Joab went to the king and told him. And when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. So Absalom comes there, he comes before David, and he lays down on the ground. Whatever you're going to do, you're going to take my head, take my head. He lays himself down before the king. What are you going to do? And the king kissed Absalom. And David loved his son. Dads are knuckleheads sometimes. Love our kids, just don't always know and don't always choose to do it how we ought. And that was the same problem that David had here. But the scripture says in verse 15, see where it says after this? In the Hebrew what it means is immediately after that happened, Absalom did not care about his dad, did his dad kiss him, did his dad did anything. His heart had already turned from his father. So immediately after that took place, it happened, Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. So here you have the best looking guy in all of Israel. He immediately leaves his father's place and he starts to act like his, grand, his grandpa. That's who he lived with before David called him. So he was living with his grandpa. And while he was living with his grandpa, while he was in that place, he watched how his grandpa, who also was a king of another country, he watched what he did. And he used to ride a chariot and, and it was a, a show of power and, and that you were an important person to have a chariot. So he had a, a slick set of wheels, and then alongside the chariot, he had these 50 guys, 25 on each side, that run along beside him. So when everybody would see him, they would go, wow, who is that? 
Look what he has. Look at the, the people who are following him. And then those guys love him so much, they just run beside his chariot just to be near him. But Absalom did this just to build his popularity with the people. We'll see what, exactly why he was doing it when we take a look. Verse 2. So Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. So it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, What city are you from? And he would say, Your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. And Absalom would say to him, Look, your case is good and right, but there's no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that I were the judge in the land. Then everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me, and I would give him justice. Absalom is a, the perfect picture right here of a politician. Most politicians. Now, what it means when it says he stood in the gate. The way they did cities in those days, there'd be a wall around the city and there'd be one entrance. But when you went in that entrance, it doesn't just go straight to the center of town. As soon as you walked in the entrance, it would take a 90 degree turn immediately. So that armies couldn't just fly into the city. And on that, right where that 90 degree turn was, all the leaders of the town would sit there. It's called the city gate. That's where they held court. That was the courtroom or the courthouse. So if someone had a problem, that's where they would go to get it fixed. Now when we read in the Psalms, which are the songs that David wrote, during the exile period that we'll read about when David flees from Absalom, he writes about being sick. So most people think during this time when people were coming for judgment, David wasn't able to meet them at the gate because he was sick. He was dealing with some physical ailments and trouble, so he couldn't be there. So in his absence, his son would go down there. And his son would say, Wow, you know, really sorry, Dad's not able to see you. But if I was in charge of things, if it was me, I, I'm just letting you know, I would, I would uphold justice for you, because that other fella, he wronged you. And when that guy thought, Yeah, thanks for hearing me, man. You're, you're a great guy. He'd walk away. And then Absalom would go to the other guy, who he was fighting with, and say, hey, what's going on? Oh, yeah. Wow, you know, I'm sorry, my dad can't hear you. But if I could hear you, I'd do whatever it is that you need me to do for you. Because that's the kind of person I am. I care about the, the little person. So he would talk to both sides and say he was going to give them whatever they wanted. Does that sound familiar? I mean, have you ever seen a politician at the end of his campaign? Do we really know what he stands for? He stands for whoever has the most people in that corner. Whoever has the most people, that's what I believe. Whoever has, oh, you have the more, um, yeah, you know, I used to think that way, but now I think this way. That's what Absalom was doing. He's trying to build up for himself a following. People who are going to say, man, I just want to, I just want to follow you. So he goes when his dad's not able to, to be in, at the courthouse. He goes and acts as though he would handle everybody's problem. Then look at this. And so it was whenever anyone came near to bow down to him. Now he's the crown prince. So people would come and, and pay their respect. Look what he would do. When anyone would come bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. So somebody would come down and bow to him, and Absalom would reach down and pull them up. Oh, come here. And he'd give him a big old hug. Man, I just... He was winning the hearts of the people. Forty years earlier, his father won the hearts of the people. Do you remember how? By being an advocate for the people. By, by being a man after God's own heart. By defeating the enemies of the children of Israel. Remember? I mean, he was, he was faithful and true. And he upheld the, the word of the king. And he was doing all these other things. But, but his son, he's just kind of laying it on. He's laying it on because he wants an opportunity to have dad's throne. So it says, In this manner Absalom acted toward all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now it came to pass after 40 years. Now this is speaking of David being king. So after David had been king for 40 years, Absalom said to the king, Please, 
Let me go to Hebron and pay a vow that I made to the Lord. Let me go fulfill a promise that I made to God. Sounds holy and righteous. But there's nothing holy or righteous about it. For your servant took a vow while I dwelt in Jeshur. That's where Grandpa lived. Their servant took a vow in Jeshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, and I will serve the Lord. So the king said to him, Go. And he arose and went. So he went to his dad and asked for permission to go back to, to or to go out toward uh, uh, Hebron to fulfill a promise that he made when he had been with his grandpa. And so Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you will say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. Hebron, one of the cities of Israel, and it's the first place David was crowned. So now Absalom's going there to try to begin his rebellion against his father. So he goes, he sends spies, Absalom... Uh, and with Absalom, excuse me, went 200 men invited from Jerusalem. And they went along innocently and didn't know anything. See, he took like 200 of the chief people of David's army and David's government. And he said, I'm going to go make a vow to the Lord and I'm going to go to Hebron. And I'd like you guys to come with me. Now, he's a crown prince. He says, come with me. Those guys say, sure, we'll go. They don't know that he's about to start a rebellion. But when he walks into Hebron, when he walks into the city, and all around him are 200 of David's choice guys, the people are going to think, those guys are all with him. They're all supporting him. So when he begins to lay forth his plan to take the kingdom, the people are going to think, man, look at all the people who are for Absalom. And by trickery, he's going to get them to, to follow suit. And then in verse 12, Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor. This is David's chief counselor, the guy who would give him counsel from his city, from uh, Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy grew strong, for the people of Absalom continually increased in number. So now those 200 guys, whoever didn't side with him, become his prisoners. And they won't be let loose for a, for a few chapters. But, but what we see is people thinking, Absalom, he's got it together. Look how handsome he is. Man, he's going he's gonna to rule righteously. And that David, you know, David is just, he hadn't done anything. What have you done for me lately? I mean, not enough. David founded the country, expanded the borders, took care of the people, made everything come together finally for the first time and more than 400 years of their history things are starting to fall into place doesn't that's all been forgotten and the people who david served and the people whom david loved and the people whom david tried to to be a good king for they've turned their back on him and his own son his flesh and blood is leading that rebellion i don't know what do you think a low time for david i mean is this going to be hard on David the king, he's just coming off the heels of, of making a mistake and, and falling in sin with Bathsheba and, and his baby dying and his oldest son being killed and his daughter being raped and now his second son is starting a rebellion against him and all the people hate him. Is that a low time for him? Yeah, it probably is. It was in those times where David writes what is called the Psalms of Exile about what was going on in his heart what was happening in his life what his thoughts are, are all about during that time in fact he just want to hold a finger here and turn to the right there's a, the book of Psalms to your right in the book of Psalms the third Psalm Psalm 3 is the Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son so you want to know, what's David thinking? What's, what's going on in David's mind? He's, remember, he's a, he's a songwriter. He's, he, he's a prolific songwriter. He wrote a lot of psalms and poetry. And so he's, he's writing these things out, and he's writing out what's going on in his heart at different times in his life. Look what he writes in the third psalm. 
Lord, how they have increased to trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Seemingly, in his life, everybody, everything was against him. Have you ever felt like that? I mean, uh, the, there's so much comfort in the Psalms because the psalmist writes from the same point of view that we, that we live in. And everything's against me. I know there have been times in my life where I felt that way. Man, I try to turn to my left and it goes south. I turn to my right, that didn't work out either. I think this is going to bail me out, but that doesn't bail me out. David says, man, there, there's trouble everywhere. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. So the people were saying, the man after God's own heart, God's turned his back on him. See, sometimes that's how we think. Sometimes we think that, that having God's favor means life is good. And then when, when we don't have God's favor, that means life is bad. And we, that's still something that we struggle with. We look at somebody who bad thing after bad thing after bad thing happens to, and, and we're wondering, I wonder what they did wrong. But in the truth, in truth, the Psalms teach us this. Life is hard and God is good. That's what it tells us. Hard things happen. Hard things happen. But it doesn't change the fact that God is good. It doesn't change the, 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 the message from the Lord. I love you. And there are certain roads and paths that our lives take that we find ourselves having to walk and we find ourselves having to go through things maybe we think nobody should ever have to experience that but this is what the word teaches us if we will if we will allow the lord he will use those hardest times in your life to minister life to someone else who's going through the same thing Remember I told you in the beginning, our problem is me-itis. And when bad things start to happen, I start to look at myself. I start to think this shouldn't, I shouldn't have to go through this. And I shouldn't have to have these things happen in my life. But in reality, if we will allow the Lord, what he'll do is he'll use your hurts to minister to somebody else. I shared with you guys before when I was out in California. I was at a board meeting, sitting down with a with uh, uh, the board of elders at a church and um, secretary runs in where we're sitting and she hands me a note real quick and the note says that a friend of mine a guy named Billy uh, Billy Roses was his name Billy just ran over his baby and they're headed to the emergency room and they're asking for you so I left ran over to the emergency room and we went in there you I mean, there's, there's really not anything to say. What, how do you comfort that? How do you comfort them? What do you say? What, what words of wisdom do you have to offer? That hurts. So I ran into the hospital. I still remember him running to me. And, and when he sees me come in, he comes running over to me. And he... And he throws his arms around me and he's crying. He's falling apart. His baby is in the same room. We're standing in the room. His baby's right on the table over there. And they're trying to, to they thought, as soon as I walked in, they thought, okay, we've got her stable. We're going to be able to trans, transfer her. And then immediately her heart stopped again and they went right back to work on her. And we're sitting in there and I'm praying with them. And I'm, and I'm doing the only thing that the scripture calls me to do. The scripture says... Mourn with him who mourns. So I just cry with him. And I tell him I'm sorry. And I wish I could make it go away. But the doctor turns and says, There's nothing we can do. Your little girl's gone. And he'll live the rest of his life knowing he ran over her. Leaving his house after having lunch 
just hugged her and kissed her. They walked into the house. Mom went into the house. And they had several kids and they thought all the kids were there. And if you think that's not possible, trust me, it is possible to think all your kids were there and close the door. But the little one wasn't there. And the little one ran over to daddy's truck. And daddy's in a big truck. And he climbs in the truck and he, and he starts it up. And no reason to think... Until it's too late. So the day we did the funeral service, I don't know, a lot of people came. And we did the, the service for his little baby girl. And, and uh, after the service, I'm in the, I'm at the, the reception, you know, or so we're having some food and, and people are, you know, just trying to minister to the family. And I get a phone call. That another family's son just got in a motorcycle accident and they don't think he's going to make it. So I went. And as I was waiting in the waiting room, I said, another story. I've told you guys before, I'm waiting there. They got us in a separate room. The doctors say we're going to try one more time, but we're not sure we're going to be able to, to get him. And all he was on a dirt bike. He fell off a dirt bike. He wasn't a big wreck. He wasn't doing doubles. He wasn't doing something crazy. He just fell off. And, and, and he was wearing all the appropriate gear, and he, where he landed, there was a rock. And the rock hit him square in the middle of the chest, and it fractured his chest in such a way that bone fragments went through his heart. And they couldn't do nothing. And there's a father in the waiting room that raises his hands to God, and he says, Lord, I don't know why, but I praise you for the life of my son. And once again, I don't know what to say. About that time, Billy Roses walks in, who just buried his baby. And he walks over to that dad. And I watch him, who understands how he feels. And the hurt that's in his heart. I watch him allow God to use that hurt to minister or to serve, to bring life to the other father. You see, life's hard all on its own. And there are things that happen that we can't understand and we're not going to be able to explain. And if you think you can find all the answers, you're not going to. But if you, I can promise you this, if you allow God to work in your life and you don't get so self-focused that all you can think about is how does this affect me? And if you will allow, God will use your pain to help somebody else. Isn't that what Jesus did? I mean, what's the cross all about? The most excruciating pain anybody could feel. The, the harshest thing anybody could ever go through. But it wasn't for him. It's for me. And so he can minister to me. So he can wash away my failures. So he can push away my sin. So he can say, hey, I've been there. I know how that feels. That's what David did. Absalom just tried to get even. David we're reading what he wrote when his son hates him when the world hates him when everybody's turned against him we're reading what he wrote more than 2,000 years later we're looking at the words of a guy who actually lived who actually went through this stuff and God is using his hurt to still minister to people today anybody ever heard of the 23rd Psalm the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I have never done a funeral where that did not minister to the family. The 139th Psalm, that God's numbered my days, that he knows me, that he's got a plan for my life, that's written out of David's pain. And it's still helping people today. 
In the third psalm, he goes on to say in verse 3, But you, O Lord, you are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. So I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. Yeah, David cried. So did those dads. So do I sometimes. So do you. And God hears every tear. And if we let him, while he can't wash away the pain, he will use your pain to help somebody else. Or we can let it make us bitter and angry and mad and hate the world. Well, what have we gained? I lived life angry, mad, and hating the world. It didn't do me a whole lot of good. But when, like David, I said, you know what, Lord, you're my shield. That means, God, you let into my life what you need to let into my life. What? The bad, the good, you let it in. And I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust in your plan. I'm going to trust in your purpose. I'm going to trust you. He never promises me all the answers, but he does promise me that he will never leave me or forsake me. And one day I will close my eyes here and I'll open my eyes to him. I'll have all my answers. But I'll have something more important, the only thing I really need. Him. The only thing I really need, my shield, the one who cares for me, the one who loves me. He says, I lay down and slept, and I awoke, and the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of 10,000 people who have set themselves against me all around. So arise, O Lord, and save me, my God, for you have struck all my enemies on a cheekbone. I love David, because when he's mad at somebody, he lets you know. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to our Lord, and your blessing is upon your people. David, as he calls out this psalm, and as we look at it, the Bible says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I'll repay. But when we're self-focused, we say, Vengeance is mine. And I'll get even. I'll get even for what they did. I'll get even for what they said. David, when he says, Lord, you're going to take care. That's all he's saying. Lord, you're going to take care of it. You're going to take care of those who have wronged me. And this story, when David's son comes against him, David doesn't do anything. What do you mean? Shouldn't he do something? Shouldn't he go fight? David doesn't. His son's marching with an army down to Jerusalem. David's going to find out. In fact, right now, if we go back, if your finger's still in that spot in 2 Samuel, go look. 2 Samuel, we see David gets the word in verse 13. Now a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of all the men of Israel are with Absalom. So David said to all his servants, Hey, everybody, go get your swords and your spears and your best horse. We're going to make our last stand right here. Oh, sorry. That's not what it says. David said to his servants, Arise and let us flee, or we will not escape from Absalom. Make haste. Let's go. Lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. This is what David's saying. This is why David, the heart of David is, is such a cool thing to study. David says, I don't want one person to die for this. So let's leave. He leaves the palace. He leaves Jerusalem. He leaves his home. He just leaves. Not much of a fight if you don't fight. So he doesn't fight. 
He's just going to leave. Now, he doesn't know what's going on, but you remember when David was supposed to be king, there was another king. And that other king's name was Saul. And Saul was mean and bad and hated David, but David, he, he wouldn't fight him. He wouldn't take his sword and kill him. He wouldn't take it. He said, if God wants me to be king, God will make me king. And now David's son is coming against David. And David doesn't know. David sinned. He's made mistakes in his life. He's done things that he shouldn't have done. And so he looks at his son and he says, I don't know if that's the hand of God or the hand of man. And until I know, I'm not doing nothing. So he walked away from it all. He walked away. Nobody died. Nobody in the city got killed because two kings were fighting. He just left. He just picked up his stuff and he, and he walked out. It says so in verse 15, And the king's servants said to the king, We're your servants. We'll do whatever you want us to do, whatever the king commands. So the king went out with all his household after him. But the king left ten women to keep the house. Concubines, or wives in those days that had, uh, had no rights. They didn't have the right of a wife or of inheritance. So he, he had them stay. Another one of David's issues, right? God said, uh, one wife. When you have a king, make sure the king knows not to multiply wives. Just one. But David didn't listen. Are there some things we don't listen to about what God says? Yeah. Don't steal the cookies, Noe. <laughs> there are some things. We read God's word and it says something. We think, well, that doesn't apply to me. That applies to somebody else. Are they calling for me, John? <laughs> I'm just teasing. They're, they... <laughs> The, as, they're, as they're doing this, as all this stuff is going on with David, and as he's, as he's facing these issues, the servants are, are going, David's going to follow with them. They're all going to go to the other side. But the, he left these ten concubines, wives without rights, who he has in his life because he wasn't obedient. Because he wanted what he wanted, because he was selfish. Same thing happens today. Same, same thing happens in marriages today and relationships today. People get selfish. People get selfish and things fall apart, don't work. There's consequences when we, when we do those things. And they were still here in David's life. But he, he leaves them to take care of the house. They're going to be okay. Nobody's going to kill them. And the king went out and all the people after him, they stopped at the outskirts of the town, and all his servants passed before him, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and the Gittites, 600 men who had followed with him uh, from Gath, passed before the king. And the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, What are you doing here? Well, that's a Jackie paraphrase. Ittai. Ittai was a guy who was a Philistine. Uh, if you don't know, Philistines were the enemies of the children of Israel. And for a while, when David was hiding from Saul, he lived with the Philistines. When David left the Philistines, Ittai took his family, and the, all the men who were with him took their families, and they ditched the Philistines, and they said, we want to follow David. So here they are. They're, they're not even Jews. These are Gentiles. These are Gentiles. They don't have no business in this. David said, well, you guys don't have to come. He's not going to attack you guys. He's after me. If you come with me, you're going to be his enemy. So David's looking at him and saying, what are you doing? Why are you coming with us? Return. Remain with the king. You're a foreigner in the land. This is, you know, it's not something that you have to do. In fact, you only came yesterday. So they'd only been there for a day. And they're, they're, picking aside already david says you don't have to do that you don't have to fight just just go back go back return and take your brethren back mercy and truth be with you but look at what Ittai says Ittai answered the king and said as the lord lives now sometimes we just gloss over that okay as the lord lives that's capital l-o-r-d that means he used the name of god 
Yahweh, the impronounceable name of God, the YHVH. Nobody can say it because there's no vowels. We don't know how it went. Some people say it's Jehovah. Some people say it's Yahweh. The reality is nobody knows. But this Philistine knew the name of God. That means he knew God. He knows God. He knows about him. He wants to follow him. And in following God, he knows that God's man is David. So he says, as the Lord lives, the Yahweh, as Almighty God, as he lives. And every time we see that, capital L-O-R-D, that's what it's telling us in Scripture. He says, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the King lives, surely in whatever place my Lord the King will be, whether in death or life, even there your servant will be. He says, I don't know... I don't care what happens, David. Whether we die or we live, we're with you. It's you and me till the wheels fall off. That's something missing in our world today. It's called commitment. Well, it's not just missing in in marriages. It's missing in relationships. It's missing in friendships. It's missing in in things. I, I had guys in my life at various times when I was in the Marine Corps and 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 going places and doing things that that I knew no matter what, any time of the day or night, they were there. No matter what. They had my back. That's what a tie was for David. Why? Because the Lord had said, that's my king. So a tie said, I'm with you. You're on the Lord's side, I'm on your side. It's you and me till the wheels fall off. So that's the promise that he makes. So so David said, okay, go and cross over. So they're crossing across the river. And the Ittai, the Gittai, and all his men, and the little ones who were with him. That, that phrase, and the little ones, that means their kids were there. All their kids. David's trying to send them all back. But Ittai says, we're with you. The time comes sometimes in our life where we've got to choose a side. We can't just say, no, I'm, I'm just not going to pick. I'm just going to stand in the middle and let life happen all around me. For a tie, that was the time he chose a side. He said, I'm on the Lord's side. I'm on the Lord's side. I'm going to stand with you. So he brings his kids. Why not? What better way for our, for our kids to learn than to be with us? Than to see us? Than to know who we are and what we believe and what we think and and that's what Ittai does. So, all the country, look what it says. All the country wept, in verse 23, with a loud voice, and all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron, and all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. Now, I don't want you guys to think this is some crazy big, big deal. So, if you think about Buell being roughly the size of Jerusalem, just the city proper. And the Kidron Valley being like a, a little hill that you go down. And, and the, the brook Kidron is like a, a, a little creek down at the bottom. It's not all that big. You and I, even me, I could jump across it. Now, at this time, today I could jump across it. At this time, people weren't pulling water out of it all the time. It was bigger. And it was a little more difficult to cross. But still, it's not big. So it's not a, we, maybe we've gone a half a mile or a mile away from the city. And we, and we are less than that when we cross the brook Kidron. And then we're going to climb up a hill on the other side. The hill on the other side, it's right on the other side of Jerusalem, is called the Mount of Olives. That's the same road Jesus walked down when he was crucified. Now David's leaving the city and walking up the same road. David's going up and walking away and basically saying, God, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to trust you to do whatever you're going to do. I'm going to put this... In your hands. And so the scripture says in verse 24. So there was Zadok also and all the Levites with him. Bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they said the ark of God and Abiathar went up. Until all the people had fin uh, finished crossing over from the city. And the king said to Zadok. Carry the ark of God back to the city. For if I find favor in your eyes. In the eyes of the Lord. He'll bring me back. And he'll show me both it and his dwelling place. He tells the priests, you can't leave a city. 
You can't take the, the Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of the throne of God. You can't, you can't take, we can't just pull God out. There's people there. And the people there still need the Ark and they still need the priests and they still need you guys. I'm fleeing, David says. I'm fleeing because Absalom's going to kill me and my servants and these guys that are in my army. He's going to kill us. That's why we're leaving. But if God wants to, he'll bring me back. So he says, go, go back. Take the ark back. The priest, go back. Still be the priest. Still do the stuff that you're supposed to do in the city there. You don't have to come with me. Now, these people want to go with David. But David says, no, man, go back. Take the presence of God. Otherwise, David has a symbol of the presence of God with him, and the people in the city have nothing. What, what do you call that? Selfish. So David says, you take the presence of God, or the symbol of the presence of God, back to the people. And you minister to the people. God will be with me. I don't have to take all that stuff with me. And so he, he tells them to go back. It says, but if, the, if he says to you, or verse 25, And the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back to the city, and if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he'll bring me back. But if he says, I have no delight in you, if God says, he's mad at me, and this is God's judgment, then let him do to me as seems good to him. On the same hill where Jesus goes to a place called Gatshmone, Gethsemane. And the, he knows that the people are coming to arrest him, to take him to the cross. And he goes to Gatshmone, the place of the olive press. And he sits down at a rock and he's praying to the Lord. And he says to the Lord, man, uh, <laughs> if there's any other way to do this. But there's not. So he says, nevertheless, it's not about me. It's about you. Not my will. Yours be done. David just said the same thing. If God wants him to be king, let him be king. If God wants me to be king, then I'll be king. But I, I'm not going to try to make something happen because whenever I do that, whenever I put my hands in the mix and try to change the circumstances of my life apart from God moving and working in my life, I mess it up. Over and over and over and over again. Until at the end, when I'm down here at the end of the line, I got a, I got a basket full of broken pieces. Broken pieces of a marriage. Broken pieces of a, of a life. Broken pieces of health. Broken pieces of a lot of things. And that's all I have here. I got that in this basket because I've been trying to do it all. And I've got to come to the point, just like David, where I say it's not about me. It's about him. It's about the Lord. But you see, you see, when you say that, then you take that basket and you give it to him. And he takes all them broken pieces and all the hurt and all the pain and all the problems and he gives us beauty for ashes. He gives us a way to redeem what we were losing. It doesn't mean maybe he gives us everything back. What it means is he helps us to redeem it, to, to buy back some, something good out of all that broken pieces. Well, you know, it's like when you see somebody make a mosaic out of broken tile. I mean, there's nothing you could do with all that tile, but, but the Lord takes all those broken pieces and he just puts it together. He makes this beautiful stained glass of our life if we let him. That's what he'll do. So David on the same hill where Jesus was, he says, whatever God wants to do in my life, I'm going to let him do it. I'm going to let God have his way in my life. And the king also said to Zadok the priest, do you not see? Return to the city in peace and your two sons with you. 
Ahamaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait in the plains of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Hey, you guys, if you guys just go back. If there's something you want to tell me, send a messenger. I'm going to be in the plains. He can come tell me what's going on. Therefore, Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up. You ever had days like that? (laughs) All you can do is fall apart. So did David. He wept as he went, and it says he had his head covered and went barefoot. Now, he didn't do it for the same reason I do it. I do it because well, I like it. He did it because it showed humility. Showed humility. He's broken. He's crying out to God. I mean, my, my son is in open war against me. I mean, what do you do as a father with that? How, how do you fix it? The only way to fix it is to see his son dead. And he doesn't want to see his son dead. So he cries. He cries out to God. He cries. He weeps. He walks. He's a broken man. Then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, Oh, Lord. Ahithophel was his best friend. Closest companion. Ahithophel left him for for his son. Well, we know why. We know why Ahithophel left. Ahithophel had a granddaughter. She was beautiful. Ahithophel was there when she got, was given away to her husband. Her husband's name was Uriah, the Hittite. His granddaughter's name was Bathsheba. And Ahithophel never dealt with his anger face to face with David. So when an opportunity came to stab him in the back, he let bitterness decide what to do. Because vengeance is mine, right? And I'll get it. No, it's not God's way. God's way was, vengeance is mine, trust me. But Ahithophel, David's best friend, left him his his most trusted advisor so when david feels betrayed he does two things and i don't want you guys to miss that we'll just do a couple more i'm going to sing a song we'll get out of here but listen he says david said oh lord first thing he did he prayed oh lord i pray turn the counsel of ahithophel to foolishness in other words don't let anybody listen to his counsel he was a very wise man in fact ahithophel if Absalom had listened to Ahithophel, David would have been defeated. Ahithophel knew what he was doing. And David knows, man, that's a powerful enemy, and he was once my friend. So he prays. He doesn't go grab a spear and go find Ahithophel. Find out where, where's his house. I know where he's on that block. He didn't drive over that block and beat on the door and say, I can't believe you stabbed me in the back. I thought you were my friend. And now I find out that you're on the other side on those people. Oh, he didn't do that. He prayed. He prayed, oh Lord, fix this mess. And the second thing he did, he got to the top of the mountain and he worshiped God. He prayed and he worshiped. You mean that's all he did? Surely he should have done something else. I can't just sit around and do nothing. You ever said those things? This is a king who just lost his whole kingdom, it's gone. And the guys in his army, we won't get there tonight, but the guys in his army are like saying, let us go kill this guy, man. We'll take him out. And David's like, just relax. We need to go seek the Lord, what he would have us do. 
We need to trust in Him that God's going to do that perfect work. We, we need to trust in the Lord. So he, he worshiped God. And as he prayed and he worshiped, the answer comes right away. It says, there was Hushai, the archite, coming to meet him with his robe torn and dust on his head. Now, in, in Bible days, that meant that, that he's mourning. He's sad. So he tears his robe and he's got dirt on his head. And I know it's weird, but it's Middle Eastern. And if you ever get a chance to go to Israel or Syria or Damascus or Jordan or any of those places, you, you'll see weird things. It's Eastern. It's a different culture. But they threw, they throw dirt on their, on their head. And so when everybody looks at him, they go, that dude's bummed. You ever looked at somebody walking down the road? They're walking down the road and, you, and you're thinking, what's the matter with that guy? Man. What a bad attitude. But you're not really sure he has a bad attitude. Maybe there's something wrong with his eyes and he always looks like that. Kind of, He's an intense person, you know. And he's thinking about where he's got to go. So he just walks by you and he don't say hi or nothing. He just, you know, he's just going. And, and you look at that guy and you go, man, what's his problem? Well, listen, if you were in the Middle East, you wouldn't have to ask that. Because if the dude had a big pile of dirt on his head... And his clothes torn, you'd say, oh, he's bummed. If the dude didn't, then you'd know, oh, yeah, that's just how he is. But we can't always tell. Their culture, you could tell what was going on, so you could tell what was happening. And, and Hushai, he runs up to him. He comes running up. He comes running up to him, and he's, 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 he's bummed. He's got this stuff on his head, and his clothes torn. And David says to him, if you go with me, then you'll become a burden to me. Now, that sounds kind of harsh. So, Hazai was a counselor. And, and he's not a warrior. He's not a fighter. And he's old dude. Old dude. And so he's, he's everybody else has already got there. And, and, and this guy's way behind. So David's like, bro, you, don't, you shouldn't be out here. You're, you're, you're not able to go. But David has an idea. He sees him as an answer to his prayer. And so he says, if you return to the city... Say to Absalom, I'll be your servant. Like I was your father's servant before, so I will be your servant. And you might defeat the council of Ahithophel for me. And you'll have Zadok and Abiathar, the two priests that went back. You'll have them as friends. And then it will be whatever you hear from the king's house. You can tell to Zadok and Abiathar, and they'll get word to me. And they will have their two sons, Ahimaaz and Zadok's son, Jonathan, and Abiathar's son, and they will send word to me about what's going on. So Hushai, David's friend, went into the city, and Absalom came to Jerusalem. That one phrase, and Absalom came to Jerusalem, means he's the king now. He's sitting on dad's throne, wearing dad's crown, and nobody died. Now how's that going to turn around? I don't know. But you got to come back and find out. A couple more chapters and, and God will put all those pieces together. But here's what I want you to just kind of hold on to this idea. Just hold on to the idea that even in a situation looks impossible, even when a situation looks like nothing good can come out of it, even when a situation looks like, like it's all falling apart. And God, He knows where the pieces fit. And maybe he's going to put them together tomorrow. Maybe he's going to put them together in two weeks or a month. He's going to put them together at the perfect time. Our job is like David to say, Hey Lord, it's not about me, it's about you. Just give me the strength I need. Give me the strength I need. Our body, we got people in the hospital sick. People getting the news that they have pancreatic cancer of which there's no cure no hope people hurting sometimes we come to church and you know maybe we all sit on this side and on Sunday morning there's a bunch of people sit on this side too and maybe we don't know that there's people over there hurting or people in here maybe God would use you Give somebody a hug and tell them you care about them. Can I pray for you? Everything okay? You know, most of them will say, yeah. Everything's okay. Even when they're dying on the inside. 
but that's okay. You still reach out. That's what Jesus did. Touch people. One life at a time. That's all we got to do. Surrender the craziness of life to the Lord and say, Man, Lord, you live through me. Let me be your hands and feet. It's the only way we can change that craziness out there. One life at a time. Amen? Let's pray. Why don't you stand with me? Heavenly Father, Lord God, we give you thanks and we... We just praise you, God, for an opportunity to study your word. Lord, I pray you just help us to comprehend the things we've looked at, the, the things that maybe speak to our life, Lord Jesus, the stuff that's from you. May, may it stay. The, the, the stuff that's not from you, we've already forgot. Lord, we just pray that you would just minister life. Help us. Help us be who you want us to be in a world a little sideways. Help us find our way. God, we just, uh, we give you the praise and the glory for the work you want to do in and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite you, we're going to close in a word of worship. So I invite you to hang on and worship with us. And afterwards, we'll be out in the courtyard and you have lots of time. Find somebody and give them a hug. And you're going to go steal the jello, aren't you, Noe? <laughs>